Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. What does it mean to be human? Countless hours have been spent by a legion of individuals working in many different disciplines in order to answer this apparently innocuous question. So then, you know, who is man that we should be mindful of him? A clear consensus is yet to be found. One major reason for the variety of disparate answers is the problem of self-reference. When man begins with himself as a proximate starting point and ends with himself as an ultimate reference point, the result is, well, it's exactly where we find ourselves today. When we check the news for the state of man's condition, do we not find him to be plunging continually? like Nietzsche's madman feared, backward and sideward, forward in all directions? Rowan Williams cautions us that if there is one great intellectual challenge for our day, it is the pervasive sense that we are in danger of losing our sense of the human. As we set out to answer this perennial question, what does it mean to be human, our focus will be on a theological who is man rather than a scientific what is man. We will avoid the danger of a positive feedback loop by self-consciously defining man in reference to God. From a Christian perspective, our definition will view man as a proximate starting point that ultimately presupposes God and his revelation. In concert with Christ's three offices of prophet, king, and priest, I argue that man can be fruitfully defined as God's image bearer, as seen from three perspectives, reinterpreter, sub-creator, an emulative lover. So we're looking at a theological definition of who is man instead of just like a scientific looking at what man is. And when I say man, I mean mankind, man and woman, image bearers of God. So there's a difficulty here. And the the difficulty is that the doctrine of the Imago Dei is easy enough to proof text. You can just look at Genesis and see that God says, so, well, in Genesis says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So that's easy enough. It's just a proof text for it. But the trouble comes when explaining what the heck that means. What does it mean to image God, to be an image bearer of God? So as we begin, it's important to note that this self-reference business, it's a tricky endeavor, as many abandoned philosophies can attest to. Yet there are few things more self-referential than man's study of himself. As philosopher Mortimer Adler notes, the study of man is the only study in which the knower and the known are one in which the object of the science is the nature of the scientist. As such, it's understandable why various men and women have arrived at a lopsided view of man. Those who are more cerebrally inclined tend to emphasize the primacy of the intellect. You are what you think. Those who are more concerned with the human capacity for choice tend to emphasize the primacy of the will. It's what you do that defines you. And those who are more feelings-oriented tend to emphasize the primacy of the emotions or the affections. You are what you love. Now, each of these dictums, while expressing some true aspect of humanity, all fall short of a full expression of what it means to be human. However, now here's the good stuff. A triperspectival view 
can find an equal ultimacy between these three perspectives on man, thus providing a richer understanding. Now, I know that phrase needs some unpacking here. Triperspectival just means viewed from three different perspectives. And so we, we have these three perspectives that people try to ultimatize. The, you know, you are what you think, you are what you do, and you are what you love. Those are each three different perspectives. And so people try to lob onto one and say, this is, this is what I'm saying man is, a lover, a doer, or a thinker. What I'm saying is you can't, you can't jettison one of those perspectives. You need to have all three and an equal ultimacy. Each one is equally ultimate. You can't get more fundamental than the other one. Otherwise, you get this lopsided view of man. So that's the solution that I'm going to propose. Now, triperspectivalism is a theory of all of life, of all of reality, of all of knowledge. It's a theory put forward by professor, theologian, philosopher, John Frame, and also Vern Poitras, though Vern Poitras tends to call the position multi-perspectivalism, whereas John Frame says try, because both of them are focusing on three, but I guess there's a, a semantic difference there. So this is a theory that all of life can be seen through three perspectives, the normative, the situational, and the existential. And Frame actually bases these three perspectives on what he sees as God's three major lordship attributes, God's authority, God's control, and God's presence. And so using this, this tool from Frame and Poitras, we can avoid a reductionistic view of man. Okay, let me, let me just unpack a little bit of that as well. So the normative perspective, norm, think norms, right? There's, there's norms, there's laws, there's rules. There's a, a perspective that is the normative. There's a situational perspective, which is the norms applied in time and space. So like, think the, the laws of logic are norms on reality. Something can exist and not exist in the same way, in the same manner. That's the law of non-contradiction. That's a norm, and then it's applied situationally in time and space. Then there's the existential perspective, and this is like the this is like the personal perspective that like there is logic and there's logic applied in time and space, and there is a logician, someone who uses logic and can mess up logic, who can apply the norms of logic wrongly. Who can, you know, like me, I, you can get wrong answers on your logic homework, which I did here and there last semester. So I like to think of uh, the game of chess. Chess has norms. It has rules. There are certain rules about how chess pieces can move, about who wins, about time limits and stuff based on what type of game of chess you're playing. There's rules. Those rules can be applied in time and space to give you various different games. There's all different games. I'm, I'm sure someone out there knows exactly how many games can be played of chess, like the, the logical maximum. So you can apply the, the rules of chess in different arenas, different times by different chess players and get uh, different outcomes. Then there's also the chess player. And this is someone who can use like creativity to uh, do a queen sacrifice and then you know get a checkmate. So they're applying the rules uniquely. There's There's got to be an applier. There's got to be someone doing the rules. So the rules of chess are the normative, situ, uh, the normative perspective. The various different games of chess represents the situational perspective. And then the actual chess players represent the existential perspective. So it's really not that bad. I know it's a lot of different crazy words, but that's triperspectivalism. And Frame and Poitras argue that all of life has to be seen through these three perspectives, and I think that they're right. And I think we can use um, the three offices of Christ in order to help develop our our theological anthropology, our the theology of man. 
So when we look at the three offices of Christ, as noted by John Calvin, we see the utility of John Frame's triperspectival approach. Calvin explains that the office enjoined upon Christ by the Father consists of three parts, for he was given to be prophet, king, and priest. So Christ Jesus, as the perfect man, he's our prophet who speaks God's truth to us, which is the normative perspective. He's also our king who reigns in righteousness over us, the situational perspective. And he is our priest who intercedes in love on our behalf, drawing us into God's presence, the existential perspective. So using Christ's three offices as our guide, we can view man from three related perspectives. Reinterpreter, which corresponds to prophet, sub-creator, which corresponds to king, and emulative lover, which corresponds to priest. As we look at each perspective, it's important to remember that this is not um, the actualization of each perspective that a person is truly human. It's not in that. If that were so, we'd have no need for Christ, right? If everyone completely acted out these three offices in their image-bearing of God, if everyone was a perfect reinterpreter, sub-creator, and emulative lover, then there would be no sin, we wouldn't need Christ. But we do need Christ, and not everyone does that. So it can't be, what makes you human is not perfectly living out these three perspectives. Mortimer Adler notes that human nature is constituted by all the potentialities that are the species-specific properties common to all members of the human species. So Adler is drawing on the potentiality, not the actuality. So our potential to be reinterpreters, sub-creators, and emulative lovers is what it means to be human. Not to fully live those out in their actuality, because we know that we don't. That's why we needed Christ to come and be our prophet, priest, and king. So rather than relying on perfect actualization, our definition finds man, man's potentiality in these three perspectives to be the necessary condition for defining him as God's image bearer. So again, I'm not saying we do this perfect. Our, my, my theory here doesn't necessitate that we are perfect reinterpreters, sub-creators, or emulative lovers. So let's dive right into reinterpreters. In focusing on man as a reinterpreter, we see man as a rational animal. That's what Aristotle said. I think he's partially right. Philosopher Roger Scruton reminds us that we are animals, certainly, but we are also incarnate persons with cognitive capacities that are not shared by other animals and which endow us with an entirely distinctive emotional life, one that is dependent on the self-conscious thought processes that are unique to our kind. It is this kind of idea of an incarnate self-conscious person or psychosomatic unity that distinguishes us from the rest of the created order. Angels might be persons, but they are not incarnate animals. Other incarnate animals show signs of intelligence, but they are not self-conscious persons. Man, as personal, self-conscious, thinking animal, is unique. As reinterpreter, man is created to think God's thoughts after him. He has been created to receive God's revelation and reason his way around God's universe, conforming all his thoughts to his creators. God's thoughts are original, they're archetypal, and they're analytic. Man's thoughts are created, ectypal, and synthetic. Thus, man's thoughts presuppose God's thoughts, or as Cornelius Van Til put it, for man, self-consciousness presupposes God-consciousness. Although man must always tacitly presuppose God, since, as Bavink notes, rationality in the world presupposes rationality in God, it is through explicitly acknowledging God that man can truly know himself. As Calvin says, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. 
and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. It is by recognizing his position as reinterpreter rather than originator that man can interpret himself rightly. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So now this brings us to sub-creator. But man wasn't created to think just for thinking's sake. He was designed to think in order to represent God as an embodied sub-creator throughout his created reality. The term sub-creator originally comes from J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories. Tolkien explains that when a fantasy story draws you into a state of literary belief, what really happens is that the story maker proves a successful sub-creator. In explaining man's love for creating fantasy stories, Tolkien says, We make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made. And not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. Though Tolkien had fairy stories in mind, his notion of sub-creator has profound implications for understanding what it means to be human. So because we've been made, we make. But even more than that, because we've been made by a maker, a self-conscious you know, maker, and made in his image, we will make stuff. Like That's a huge component of who we are. We are sub-creators. Think to the, uh, the cultural mandate in Genesis 1.28. God commissioned Adam and Eve in their roles as sub-creators by saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Here man is given his purpose. He's not in arbitrary cosmic accident. Man, as image bearer of God, is the peak of God's creation. He's been given authority to rule the created order as king under the king. As Francis Schaeffer remarks, dominion itself is an aspect of the image of God in the sense that man, being created in the image of God, stands between God and all which God chose to put under man. As that which was created, man is no higher than all that has been created. But as created in the image of God, he has the responsibility to consciously care for all that which God put in his care. Thus, in understanding man, we must understand man's calling as sub-creator. I love that point by Schaefer. Schaefer's saying, look, we're still created. So when it comes to created, uncreated, yes, we're on this side of the bubble. We're on this side of the line, standing in the same uh, realm as creation. But as God's image bearer, we mediate between God and the rest of the created world. We're called to represent him, to make things after him, to be his arbiters, his ambassadors here on earth, to make his will be done here in the world. That's huge. And this brings us now to emulative lover. This is the, the third perspective on man. This represents the existential perspective. Emulative lover. We emulate love. Man being created in the image of God represents God by loving as God loves. In 1 John 4, 7-8, John makes this point explicit when he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Man is to love his fellow man because of who he knows God to be. So just as God made man to think his thoughts after him and to subcreate according to his will, he also made man to emulate his own love. James K.A. Smith, utilizing Augustine to emphasize this third perspective, writes, 
You are what you desire. This teleological aspect of the human person, coupled with the fundamental centrality of love, generates Augustine's third insight. Because we are made to love the one who made us and loves us, we love because he first loved us. Again, John, 1 John 4.19. We will find rest when our loves are rightly ordered to this ultimate end. But Augustine also notes the alternative. Since our hearts are made to find their end in God, we will experience a besetting anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. And so there again, there's that famous dictum that we see in the emulative lover perspective. As Smith rightly recognizes then, man was created in love by loving God for love. In order for man to live up to his telos, he must love as God loves. Thus, an essential part of man's identity is his role as emulative lover who loves what he ought to love as he ought to love it. So this brings us to, uh, to a brief conclusion here. The Bible provides us with these three perspectives by which we can understand who man is. Each facet, if taken in isolation and given primacy, will leave us with a warped view of man. But when given equal ultimacy, the perspectives yield a thick understanding of what it means for man to be an image bearer of God. Man's reason is a gift from God in order for him to reinterpret reality according to God's revelation. Man's purpose in life is embedded in his drive to cultivate, procreate, and exert dominion over God's created realm as a sub-creator. And man, as emulative lover, is to love God with all of his being and love his fellow man as himself. And as we noted earlier in this podcast, it is not in the perfect actualization of these roles that man finds his identity, but rather it is in his God-given potentiality that man recognizes himself. Insofar as individual men and women fall short of this calling, they need to look to the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, as their prophet, king, and priest for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So this is who man is. This is what it means to image God. And we all fall short of this image of God. And we need a Savior. We need Jesus. This is what's so crazy. Man, I love it. I'm getting all worked up. I'm getting all excited here. We can talk about this more. And... Hopefully, we will soon. Especially, we need to talk about the hypostatic union of Christ coming down, the God-man, truly God, truly human, imaging God perfectly and being God perfectly. So, look forward to that in a future episode. If you like this podcast episode, like it, uh, subscribe, share it, all that good stuff. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.